I'd like to ask the rest of you to turn to Romans chapter 8 this morning for an introduction to Romans 9, which we'll be looking at today. So if you want to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, and I want to begin with a little reading exercise. It's more than an exercise because it's reading one of the greatest sections, most beloved sections in all of the Bible, talking about our security, about our sureness in Christ. I'd like you to join me, and we're going to read verses 31 to 39 of Romans 8, and then I'd like you to keep reading with me. So we're just going to begin in that section, and then we're going to keep reading. Just a a great, great, awesome passage we've been studying together. If you'd follow along with me as I begin reading Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor Anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Keep reading. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service. What happened? No, I don't have schizophrenia. Uh, No, I haven't gone off my medication because I'm not on any. I said keep reading and I lost you. I kept reading. What did I start reading? I went to Romans 12.1. Some of you knew that right away because you know that verse well. You kept reading in verse 9. Why did I do that? Well, I did that obviously for effect. This is introduction. But I did that because it would be just like the Apostle Paul to do that. That's how Ephesians would read. That's how Colossians would read. That would be classic Apostle Paul to talk about how great Christ is, to talk about how great His work is, how it is complete and sufficient, and then to transition into exhortation to start talking to those of us who believed in Christ, saying, now live in light of what He has done. So the question then is, why three extra chapters? I mean, you just read through Romans 1 to 8, and, and if you're just following nor- normal Pauline thinking, if you will, you go to chapter 12. Why Romans 9, 10, and 11? Why three extra chapters that in one sense don't seem to belong? What are they here for? And I can answer that question in a single word. And that single word is the word Israel. Israel. Romans 9, 10, and 11 is about Israel. It's what we might call the Israel question. Romans 9, 10, and 11 answers the Israel question. 
You see, the Apostle Paul knows, although he wouldn't have used our vernacular, our terminology, he knows there's a big elephant in the room. And he can't go on to chapter 12 until he's asked and answered, if you will, the Israel question. Now, maybe you're not asking the Israel question, but bear with me on this and think. If you're reading your Bible and you read through the Old Testament, you know, ready, go. Well, we're not going to do that right now, but you're reading through your Old Testament and you're seeing these great promises of God made to the nation of Israel. That they're irrevocable promises, that they are sure promises, these covenants, these official, legally binding promises that God makes. And then you get to the New Testament and Jesus, as the Old Testament Messiah comes, and by and large, most Israelites reject Him. By and large, most Israelites are lost. Paul says he wants them to be saved in chapter 10, verse 1. That means they're lost. And so you're, you're saying, wait a minute here. You know, I love Romans 8 as a Christian because Romans 8, you know, neither height nor depth nor anything, nothing at all whatsoever, however you want to say it. He says it all different ways, can separate us from the love of Christ, the love of God in Christ Jesus. And, and last time we're like, yeah, we're sure, we're secure in Christ. Amen. But if you think long enough, and and biblically enough, if you will, you're going to ask the question, what about Israel? How can I be so sure that I'm secure? Because God made Romans 8-like promises, not exactly the same, but but of, of that kind of magnitude to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. And given the fact that most Jews are rejecting Jesus as Messiah. It kind of looks like God doesn't keep His promises. That's why Romans 9, 10, and 11 is in Romans. To deal with that issue. So that when we read Romans 8, we can actually see it as the great promise that it is. Because there is an answer to the Israel question. If you want to summarize Romans 9, 10, and 11... The answer to the Roman or to the Israel question, as I'm calling it, is in verse six. Look at verse six with me of Romans nine. Here's the answer to the elephant in the room. <laughs> but it is not as though the word of God has failed. You might think that at first, but it's not that way. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. There it is. Now, he's going to say it in different ways, and he's going to reemphasize it in Romans 9, 10, and 11. But he knows there's an objection, and he engages it. You know why? You can know that Romans 8 is true for you if you're a Christian. Just know that God has not had his word fail. Those Old Testament covenants, those covenantal promises... They can be counted on. They're sure. You see, the problem is not with God's promises. The problem is in the reality that at the end of verse 6 in chapter 9, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. In other words, just because you're part of the nation doesn't mean you as the individual are automatically saved. You do have to believe. If we're going to put it in other Romans 8-ish terms, just because the nation is elect 
doesn't mean every single individual in the nation is elect. And so in Romans 9, 10, and 11, he gets at this business of not all Israel is true Israel. He, he deals with the issue of the sovereignty of God and God's sovereign grace to make sure that when we read Romans 8, even if we're well-informed and we know our Old Testaments, we read Romans 8 and we can say, it is true and there is not a problem with God making promises because ultimately the, God, the problem is not with God's promises. Because not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And we're going to see some big stuff in Romans 9, that it's God's sovereign prerogative because He's God. He is not obligated to do things our way. He does it His way. And if He elects a nation as a nation, but not every single individual in that nation, you know what? That's God's business. But we need to understand it if we're going to understand the sure promises of Romans 8. And that's what we'll do. Now, Paul is very wise in Romans 9 to not start with verse 6. I mean, if he just started with verse 6, you know, if he just all of a sudden just went, pop, you have an objection to, to all this? You have a question? Let me just give you a bloody nose. Because Romans 9, 6 is kind of, kind of to the point. And so he wisely gives the first five verses as preliminary. He gives a couple big preliminaries, if you will, to get us ready for the, for, for the hard truth, if you will. And so we're going to focus on these two preliminaries that come up in Romans 9, 1 to 5. The first one is he expresses his own personal burden for Israel. And then the second one is in verses 4 to 5. He acknowledges and he knows that God has uniquely blessed Israel as a nation. You see, because in our terms, Paul was going to be accused, no doubt he was being accused, of being anti-Semitic. Remember, Paul wrote Galatians in, in talking about how Gentiles are included. Remember Romans 1.16, how, how uh, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all those who believe for the Jew first and also for the Greek. He sounds, because he's so pro-Gentile as the apostle to the Gentiles, he could be confused with someone who's anti-Israel. In our terms, he no doubt was being accused or would be accused of being anti-Semitic. Especially when he says things like he says in Romans 9, 10, and 11. So these first five verses today are just introduction, just getting us ready. But it will help us to better handle verses 6 and following. And so let's look at this preliminary approach to the hard truth about God's sovereign decrees regarding the nation of Israel that we'll see in the days ahead. Let's look at Paul's burden first in the first three verses. Verse 1 says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. Literally, the first Greek word is truth. First Greek word is truth is what I'm speaking. I, I want to I just be bold and upfront with you. I'm, I'm only telling the truth. As one who's united with Christ, I couldn't be more sincere. Then he says it in the negative in verse 1. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. I have a clear conscience. I'm telling the truth here. What I'm going to say is honest and sincere. As God so help me by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. What I'm going to express to you as far as my burden for Israel is real. I'm not playing manipulator here. I, I'm not trying to mess with your emotions, is what he's saying. 
Look at verse 2. That I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. You know, it's like you can hear the tears if that were possible. You just, I, I couldn't tell you how burdened I am. It's real. It's genuine. He sounds a lot like an Old Testament prophet. So many times the Old Testament prophets were not actually committing the sins of the nation. But they speak in the first person because they're so identifying with the nation that they're speaking as if it's their own sin. He's saying, I, I so identify with my kinsmen, with Israel. This is so serious for me. Their rejection of Messiah is no doubt what he's talking about as we will get to. He, he's making it clear, I'm not indifferent, I'm not cold, I'm not merely theologizing, which is really important in Romans 9 because Romans 9, again, is really blunt. It's really bold. It's very, very steeped in theology. And he's saying, look, I'm not merely giving you cold, hard facts. I am one who feels moved and burdened. I love my people Israel. This is all true. It's right. My theological T's are crossed and I's are dotted. But, but this is not out of cold indifference. I'm burdened that my fellow kinsmen, my, my, my fellow Israelites reject Jesus as Messiah. It's so strong. I can't believe this in one sense. That he says this. Look at verse 3. For I could wish... For I could wish that I myself were accursed, damned of God without opportunity for repentance is the idea there, anathema, and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. You see what he's doing there? He's wording it even in such a way as to acknowledge the impossibility of this. this. This can't really be true, but I am so burdened and moved for my brothers and sisters in, in, in my nation that, you know, it makes me feel like if it were possible, I would take the, the curse of God and be cut off for Christ, from Christ for them if I could. That's how I'm feeling. They are lost. They've rejected Messiah. Romans 10.1 They need to be saved because they're not. The implication of verse 3 is they are under the curse of God. That's why Paul says, I wish I could take the curse of God. It's just, in, in all the best senses, he is emoting here. He is so passionate about them. He loves them so much that he's expressing himself in this way. And it's good and important that he does this because of what he's going to say. He is so burdened that they have not experienced the great salvation that he's experienced. That they have not seen what should be so clear in front of them about Jesus being Mashiach, Messiah, clearly in the Old Testament. And, and he has experienced forgiveness through Christ. And he's experienced atonement in Christ, ultimate and complete. He's experienced justification in Christ. And it's all pointing toward Christ. And they're not seeing it. And, and it's just the natural thing for him to do to say, Oh, I wish I could do anything possible to have you get it. Now, we find ourselves in a little bit different scenario, but surely there's some application here. 
It'd be good that we would pray, God, give me this kind of burden for lost people I know. Instead of indifference, you know, we're studying Romans and we're going to talk about the decrees of God. You know what? We're figuring some things out in Romans. We can understand the theology, but let's remember, and I'll hopefully go back to this. If I don't, remind me. When we get into all that strong, bold, clear-cut theology in Romans 9, remember, this is what introduced it. Burden for people. That these are not mutual exclusives. To have love and burden and affection for lost people and to know that the God we're talking about is, in fact, a decreeing God. And exactly how they complement each other is not so easy to understand, but they obviously do because they're right here in the same chapter. I say literally, oh God, give us this kind of burden for people. Oh yes, give us a commitment to truth and good, clear theology, but at the same time, God, help us to not be so lopsided as we are so easily. Give us this kind of passion and burden for people. Make us like David Brainerd, the missionary to the American Indians. I dream of lost souls, he said. It's what moves me. And David Brainerd wasn't a theological novice. He understood that God is a decreeing God like Paul did. But the burden is there. It's no wonder Jonathan Edwards liked him so much. He was right in his thinking, but he had such a burden that he even said this, I care not what suffering I undergo as long as I see souls saved. Brainerd was smart. Brainerd had all the education. And what did he do? He went out and gave his life to die a young death with the American Indians. Because he was burdened, he was so moved of God, not saying, well, you know what, I believe in election, so I don't really need to go. I believe in Romans 9. Well, he believed in all of Romans 9, not just 9, 6, and following. And so to the degree that, that we need some good exhortation, some good rebuke, some good reminding, I say let's take it to heart. Let's take that to heart. There's heaviness, and we don't often have that kind of heaviness. I heard a story of two friends talking about how the one friend just got a new pastor who he really, really liked. And his buddy said, what happened to the old pastor? Why did you get rid of him? And he said, because he kept telling us that we were going to go to hell. So we got rid of him. And so he said, well, what about the new pastor? Why do you, why do you like the new pastor so much? What, what, what does he say? He said, he keeps telling us, you are going to go to hell. And the friend was like, what? What's the difference? They both give you the same message. And he said, the difference is, the first pastor told us we were going to go to hell. And he seemed to want us to go there. And the second pastor is burdened for us and doesn't want us to go there. I like that. You got to tell the truth. You got to you got to you got to embrace Romans 9. It is what it is. Somebody will leave this church over Romans 9, I guarantee you, and it won't be today's sermon. <laughs> 
Not because I'm a prophet, but it's just how it goes. I mean, Romans 9 is just like... Most people I know would rather have me tell them they're going to hell than actually read Romans 9. And she's just really, really blunt and really, really bold. But it's all surrounded and introduced by this, oh, I wish I could get through to these people. I wish I could take their place. I love them so much. And my prayer as a pastor is that we would have that kind of affection, that we would have that kind of burden for lost people, and that we would have that kind of uh, emoting if need be. So glad for these opening verses. So many times Romans 9, 1 to 5 is just treated as mere introduction. I think it's so helpful because it brings the right balance to what we're going to see. Let's move on now. He gives another preliminary to this section before he says it's because not all Israel is truly Israel. Before he gets to that, now he goes with blessing. He talks first of all about burden. Now he talks about blessing in verses 4 and 5. Look at the very beginning of verse 4. They are Israelites. Now usually when you see a list of blessings upon Israel in these verses, this one's skipped and I'm not even going to skip it. He says they are Israelites, which is more significant than him saying, as he does say sometimes, they are Jews as opposed to Gentiles. He's not making the point they're Jews as opposed to Gentiles. They're Israelites. That is to say, they are the people of God. They are God's covenant people. What? That, that is a huge blessing. But then he starts unpacking the individual blessings. We're going to go look at them one at a time to see and to be impressed with God's blessing upon Israel. Verse 4 then says, And to them belong the adoption. And we can stop there and think about that. What a blessing that is. It's especially a blessing to think that that Israel as a nation has been adopted by God. The adoption. Each one of these has the the, the, the article in front of it to make it stronger. And this becomes more profound when we think about their state when God chose to adopt them. We've talked about this before in other contexts, but when we hear adoption, we, we think of, you know, oh, look at the little baby, you know, goochie, goochie, goo, you know. Make an idiot of myself to make the point. We say, oh, that little baby boy, that little baby girl is so sweet. I would just like to take them and make them mine, you know, adoption. It's not so much the biblical picture. The biblical picture is you know, teen, adolescent, rebelliousness, acne. Smells like a middle schooler. (laughs) Okay? It's more the idea. Because, look with me if you would, look at Deuteronomy chapter 7. Don't just take my word for it. But you say they have the adoption. Well, that's a huge big deal when it comes to God and God blessing them because Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy... Deuteronomy is one of those just classic passages that reminds us that God didn't say, oh, Israel is the biggest, baddest, most powerful, amazing nation. Since I'm God, I'm going to make them my nation. He does the exact opposite. Because He's God, He takes the runt. He takes the ultimate rebel and says, because I'm God, I will make them my nation and make them holy. Look what it says in Deuteronomy 7.7. It is not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. 
God doesn't elect based upon their goodness. In fact, he, they're the misfits. That's why He chose them. For you were the fewest of all peoples. And God does that to show how great He is in making them into something, if you will. So they have, they have the adoption. Man, Israel is blessed. They have the adoption. So because of God's work, He can then say what He says like in Genesis 12 too, and I will make you a great nation. Not because they are great. He's going to make them great. God has uniquely blessed Israel by giving them the adoption. How about next in the list is glory. Look at verse 4 where it says, They are Israelites. To them belong the glory. To them belong the glory. The synonym that you want to keep in mind to understand that is what belongs to them is the presence. The presence of God. Israel in the wilderness. God is with them. The glory is there. Exodus chapter 16, verse 10. Chapter 33, verse 22. Chapter 40, verse 34. 1 Kings 8 and on the list could go that God is with them. The glory of God is with them. That makes Israel different from all the other nations. God didn't adopt the other nations. He only adopted Israel. God didn't uh, give His presence to the other, other nations. He gave His glory to Israel uniquely. But we don't just have it in a generic sense. You also have it in a unique and special sense where you have the tabernacle and you have the the temple in the Holy of Holies where the presence of God is like it is nowhere else? Man, Israel had what no other nation had. The very presence of God. You know, we have in God we trust stamped on our nickels and dimes. But that ain't nothing. (laughs) God was with them. They stand out among every other nation. And Paul wants to make sure that they know, that he knows that that's the case. Or how about if we continue on the covenants? They are Israelites and to them belong the covenants. Legally binding promises. Starting at least for the nation of Israel with the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12. And then the other covenants as well. Who do they belong to? Well, it says right here in our Bibles... To them belong the covenants. God didn't make these official legally binding promises with all of the nations. He made them with Israel. Israel. And only Israel. Oh yes, all the nations of the earth could be blessed through them, but He made the covenants with Israel. God made unilateral covenants with Israel. Una meaning one. That God Himself made the promise, if you will, with Himself on behalf of the people. Try that for a covenant. Pretty amazing. Unbreakable. Which again is why we have Romans 9, 10, and 11 because if He makes these unbreakable covenants then why do most Jews not believe in Messiah? which is why we have these verses. It's pretty amazing. Well, let's continue on with more blessings. The giving of the law comes next in verse 4. They are Israelites, and to them belong the giving of the law. Now we've got, you know, Mount Sinai, Exodus 20, 
the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, God uniquely speaking to Moses on behalf of the people. There's no other nation that has that. I mean, Lord willing, some of us are going to go to Mount Sinai in, in February of 2011 when we go to Israel and we go to Egypt and we go to Mount Sinai. Where, why are we going there? Because God is going to speak to us and give us more commandments? No, we're going to go there because of this historic fact. Because this is the place where God gave the law to Moses. Amazing. But he didn't give it to anybody else. He, he gave it to Moses. He gave it to the people of Israel. And it says there, to them belong the giving of the law. Now, first, when we, we see that, we, we, I don't know about you, when you read that, in one sense you go, the other things I can see as blessings, but the giving of the law, that, that's a curse. That's not a blessing because the law just shows me my sin. Well, that's true, but that's not the only thing that's true. So many times we think, law, bad, you know? Jesus, good. Me, Tarzan. <laughs> you know, we're overly simplistic in our uh, Tarzan mentality. It's true, the law is against us because we're sinners, but the law is not bad. Law, good. <laughs> Me, bad. <laughs> this is a great privilege. In fact, even in, 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 in Romans, we saw in Romans seven twelve. so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and Good. It's so good. The psalmist says in 119, Psalm 119.72, it's better than thousands of gold and silver pieces. It's precious. The law is precious because it reveals God to us. It reveals God's will to us. The law is not bad. The law is good. What's more is, quoting Jesus in Luke 24.44, Jesus is referring to the law, and here's what he says. I'm quoting him. Written about me. Law, good. <laughs> Jesus himself said it was written about me. Or to quote from John chapter 1, verse 45, of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. Or how about Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came what? To fulfill the law. That's why I came here and lived a perfectly righteous life because you never would and died a sinner's death satisfying the just requirements of the law and rising again victorious showing that God was pleased with all of this. So when we hear Israel belonging to them the law, the law that is good, the law that is holy, the law that speaks of Jesus, we say, man, the Jews are blessed people. The Jews are very blessed indeed. Romans 3.2 said the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Man, God, is, God has set them apart in such a unique way. How about next on the list of blessings? The worship is described in verse 4. They are Israelites and to them belong the worship. Some of your translations say service. This is kind of interesting. Worth, worth us taking a little bit of extra time on because which is it? Is it service? Is it worship? How do, how do the two relate? The Greek word is a generic word for worship or service. That's why the translations differ. It's the word latreia. 
Latreia, L-A-T-R-E-I-A, Latreia. I'm going to take just a couple minutes to explain why we would draw the conclusion we would draw about what it means. They have the worship. They have the Latreia. Well, in one sense, that word is used very generally for serving God, and it's used even for synagogue worship. John chapter 16, verse 2. We won't turn there. You can just jot it down. Same word as you, same Greek word, and it's serving God in the synagogue. That, that's more generic, worshiping God in that sense, serving God in that sense. But in Hebrews 9.1 and Hebrews 9.6, it's used of temple worship, which is a little bit more ratcheted up. We're not just talking about general synagogue worship. We're talking about temple worship where there are sacrifices. And now we're on to something in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament. Remember, the Old Testament's originally written in Hebrew and Aramaic. But later on in the people's verbiage, it was put in Greek. So if you're reading a book and it says LXX, that's just shorthand for Septuagint. Paul probably had his Old Testament in Greek. He had the Septuagint. Scholars tell us, I didn't take the time to look this one up. Sometimes I do, but I didn't look it up this time. Scholars tell us that in the Septuagint, every time this Latreia word is used, it's always used in relationship to the sacrificial system. Okay, that's the data. Let's put it into application or understanding. To them is given the worship. Well, since the word is used generically, generally, how about worshiping God generally, generically? That is over against and indifference from the nations who are idolaters. So let's start there and say, you know what? Israel was given the privilege to be able to worship God, to be able to know who God is, to be able to rightly understand Him and not be stuck in the mire and the muck of idolatry. Man, they could truly, genuinely say they worship God. It even makes me think about John chapter 4 when Jesus tells the Samaritan woman that salvation is of the Jews. Why? Because they have the worship. Now, there are other implications, but, but then let's... Look how it's also used. Temple worship, sacrifice. That tells us if they had, if belonging to them is the worship, temple worship, sacrifice. One more word. Atonement. One more word. Forgiveness. You read through the book of Leviticus? Describing what happens in the temple? Sacrifice, atonement, and forgiveness. Now, there are all kinds of bigger issues if I bring that up, and that's because ultimately it's not going to be sufficient because there has to be one who will come to save his people from their sins. It's not lasting. It's not sufficient. That's why we have the book of Hebrews. But make no mistake about it, Leviticus over and over again talks about atonement, Forgiveness. Even though it's forward-looking to the Lamb of God, no doubt, but Israel had atonement. Israel had forgiveness. Talk about blessing. God doesn't say that about anybody else. In fact, if you were not part of the nation of Israel, you had to become part of the nation of Israel if you were going to have any hope of atonement, any hope of forgiveness. And so this is huge. They have, I even like the way it said, the worship. They had the way to God. 
really stands out. They had the roadmap that would point them ultimately to the Lamb of God, the one we read about in the book of Hebrews. Now let's look at promises. Let's keep going. It gets better. No, it doesn't. It's still good. It gets better. Sounds like one's better than the other. Edit that, please. <laughs> Verse 4 goes on to say, They are Israelites, and to them belong the promises. I think we can cover that one easily because the promises. Well, let's just think about what, I mean, what's like one of the greatest promises you can think of in all of the Old Testament that belongs to Israel. Well, we just learned about it in Romans chapter 4 where it talks about Abraham believed God, quoting what? Genesis 22? Genesis 15. Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He had justification. That's a pretty big promise. Not to mention the promise of Messiah that he is going to come. Not to mention those other passages we just looked at like in Luke and in John. They had the promise belonging to them as the promise, the ultimate promise. How can you ultimately be justified? It's Christ. So they have the promises. Kind of makes you want to become an Israelite, huh? Maybe not so fast. Here are a couple of interesting fun facts that aren't so fun. The nation of Israel is surrounded by 22 hostile Islamic dictatorships that are 640 times her size and 60 times her population. Attendance for the Israel trip just went down. (laughs) It will be an exercise in trusting the sovereignty of God. How about this? Six million Jews in Israel surrounded by over 150 million Muslims. Six million Jews and 150 million Muslims? Who, if I can just be overly generic and generalize, who would love nothing more in all of life than to have them eradicated, destroyed? Pretty wild. A professor I know in Israel said, regarding Israel, this little itsy-bitsy spot on the map with relatively few people on it, surrounded by all of these people who would not love to have them smoked out and squashed. He said, don't tell me God is not at work in this world in the days in which we live. The fact that Israel exists is mind-boggling. Interesting to think about. It has nothing to do with our point here, but it's interesting to think about. <laughs> Actually, it does. They have the promises. They have all these blessings. That they're even a nation is absolutely mind-boggling. Then the text goes on to say in verse 5, but we're going to connect it to verse 4, they are Israelites, to them belong the patriarchs. That, that is to say... The genealogy, you know, you've got promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to all those who are in their line. You know, this is why they have, they have lineages. That, this is why they have family trees, if you will, that matter. Mine doesn't matter. Who cares about who I'm related to? Aberdorfs, you know, or some other. That's what my football coach used to call me. 
Who cares? You know, what good thing did they do? These are genealogies that matter because if you're in that line, you're part of the nation. This is why Matthew 1 is so impressive because ultimately in this genealogy, as we'll see, Jesus is in this line. The patriarchs, they have the patriarchs. In one sense, overstating it, is to have everything, but not quite everything. And then finally, and I think things shift a little bit here. Still good, but we're getting close to verse 6. They have the Christ. Look what it says. They are Israelites, verse 4, verse 5. And from their race, the Jewish race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, the Mashiach, the Messiah, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Jesus is a Jew. Talk about privilege. What does it say? The Christ, the Messiah, who is God over all. You want to know how blessed Israel is? Paul's saying, God over all. Messiah connected to them. This is huge. If there's anything that's true about me, Paul is saying, it's I'm not anti-Semitic. Not in a bazillion lifetimes am I. I am all for them, burdened for them. As a matter of fact, Jesus Messiah is, is from them. But did you notice? There is a shift in the feeling of the verse. He is getting us ready for verse 5 when he says, according to the flesh. He's not only more than a man, he's the divine one. So he could say according to the flesh in that sense. But I do think we're now starting to feel the readiness of verse 6 in my opinion. There's not a spiritual connection to him at this point in time, by and large, with the nation. Maybe that's reading too much into it, and I want to be honest and say that, but it seems like he's getting us ready. Yes, if anybody's blessed, it's Israel as a nation. All of the affection he can show and be honest about, he shows it. And he knows that he's well versed and knowledgeable about Israel and her blessings. And hopefully we're more knowledgeable now, even as just that brief review this morning. But then he does say what he says in verse 6, and he gets to the heart of the matter. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel And it gets real quiet, I think. And now we're going to talk about why most Israelites reject Jesus as Messiah. And we're going to talk about the sovereign freedom of God to show His grace the way He wants to show His grace. And we're going to get to the heart of the matter of why we can trust Romans chapter 8. We'll do that next time. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for this morning. And thank you for 
even reminding us this morning that you bless greatly, not according to our works. You didn't bless Israel in adoption because of their goodness. And you didn't give them the covenants because of their goodness. So we're reminded that we're not saved, those of us who are, because of our goodness. It's because of the goodness of Jesus, Messiah, the Christ. And Lord, in the days ahead, as we contemplate your sovereignty and your freedom to show grace the way you want to show grace, and as we see that you are not obligated to elect everyone, every single individual, even if you do elect nations. Lord, may we remember the burden that is here in these opening verses so that we would be honoring to you even with our attitudes regarding the truth. And Lord, we do pray for you to impress upon us the greatness of your sovereign grace, the greatness of your undeserved favor that you show to us ultimately in the person of your son thank you for history that we can learn from it that we can understand your word better even as a result of it and lord as all of this points to christ lord may we love history even more as we can see it unfolding and being brought to fruition in the perfect person and work of jesus the messiah in his name we pray amen